Thank you, and thank you those that uh, serve with you in leading us in worship, preparing our hearts for the word of the Lord. I'm so grateful that you are here this morning. I hope you have a Bible with you, something that you can open up or something that you can turn on, and that you will join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When you came in, you may have got a copy of our bulletin. On the back of that, there'll be some notes that uh, we will work through or during our time together in the Word. It should be behind me on the screen, above me. Um, but if you want to follow along as we um, work through this passage together. It was back in 1792 in a small little town in Connecticut. A man by the name of Charles Finney was born. Charles Finney would grow up in the Presbyterian Church. He'd become a minister within the Presbyterian Church. And he was, by many estimates, considered one of the influential leaders in the Second Great Awakening. And he was one of the influential spiritual leaders that helped kind of bring a, a revival to the people. And not only was he in the Presbyterian denomination, but he was a revivalist, a, a very passionate revivalist. And he would go on an itinerant type of ministry, and he would go from town to town, from church to church, and preaching these revival messages. And it was even kind of a little bit peculiar, because within the Presbyterian world, they're not known for being very animated and for being very excited. But here you have Charles Finney, and he is excited, he is passionate, and he is going and he is just seeing people turn to Jesus by the droves. But there's some other things that Charles Finney introduced that still are seen today. He was somebody that would look at the mentality, look at the proclivities of people, and he would model his service and he would model his teaching off getting the results of people. So he introduced what they call an anxious seat. If you were there at one of his revival meetings and you thought, maybe I should uh, give my life to Jesus, maybe I should make a decision for Christ, they had an anxious seat where you would then come set and they would pray over you and they would give you an opportunity to find out more information, etc., etc., etc. He also had a type of a, uh, a public censure. He believed that you would get up and that there were people that were guilty of sin. There were people that were guilty of debauchery. There were people guilty of hypocrisy. Then he would call you out because he thought accountability was a way to get people to turn to the Lord. He had a methodology that he said, if you do A and B and C, then D will be the result. In fact, some of his methodology and some of his practices became known as Finneyism. And in fact, you can find books, you can find articles talking about the influence and the effect of Charles Finney. And more so uh, than uh, back in the seven, late 1700s and early 1800s, today we see it where people come in and they think, you know what, when you gather a crowd together, you can have a program, you can have a, a plan, you can have a methodology, and you will get a prescribed or predicted amount of results. But is that the way to reach people. Have a program, have a plan, have a known factor that if we come in and we sing the right song, we say the right word, we have the right lights, we have the right temperature in the air, we do the right things outwardly that we can get the right decisions inwardly. Is that the way to reach 
people. We have been walking through the last weeks now talking about the core values of the church. Three core values we embraced as a church was to build families, teach the Bible, and be the church. And within those three core values, we also as a church adopted a mission statement. And the mission statement may not be as wordy and it may not be as polished as some of you all may think is appropriate. But our mission statement as a church is very simply to reach people and teach people. And really that is what we as a church say. That is why we exist here in Wellston, Oklahoma, is to reach people and teach people. But then the question comes, well, how are we going to reach people? What is our methods? What are our practices? What are our ethics? What in the world are we going to do in order to reach people? Well, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want you to see with me this morning that Paul gives us a model. Paul gives us an example. Paul gives us a picture in how it is that he reached people. And I think that as a church that we can come to this passage and we can say, if we want to think about how it is that we reach people in this community, how it is that we reach the lost around us, how do we reach people, we have a great model and a great example here in the text that Paul says, this was my priorities, this was my intentionality, this is the way I did it. And we have been given the word of God, not only to correct us, but to instruct us. So we're going to come here to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning and we're going to see the model and the example that Paul gave us on how it was that he reached the people, how it was that he reached the community. And hopefully by the time we're through this morning, we can look back and say, okay, so how is it that I as an individual am reaching people? And how is it that we as a corporate body are reaching people? So if... You will be there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'll read aloud if you'll follow along in your copy of God's Word. Let's read these first five verses together. Then let's step back and look through these five verses and see the priorities that Paul has given us when it comes to reaching people. Paul writes and he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I pray that God adds understanding and application to his word this morning. Right here in these first five verses, Paul tells us that when he came to the church there, or when he came actually to the city of Corinth, when he came to the people of Corinth, even before there was a church there in Corinth, that this is how he sought to reach people. So he talks about his priorities in these first few verses. And I want you to walk through with me in the, in the few minutes that we have, walk through what Paul said were his priorities. The first priority that Paul demonstrates for us is that he has a priority to proclaim the good News. If you look back there, up there in verse 1, he says, I did not pro come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He said, when I came to you, my whole goal, my whole intention was to proclaim the good news to you. Now you may say, well, Spence, okay, so how do you define what is the good news? Well, the good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
He talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. So what Paul says is when he's coming and when he's reaching out to the people, it's not a matter of saying, Hey, look at the messenger. Look at me. Look how smart I am. Look how polished I am. Look how good-looking I am. Look how friendly I am. Getting people to like me and, and draw themselves into me. No, it's not the messenger. It's not the experience that you come in and you say, oh, we're just going to lull people's sensitivity and people are going to be lulled by the aesthetics and they're going to be lulled by the experience of what we're doing in here. No, no, no. It's not the messenger. It's not the experience. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the news that you were a sinner. That you were going to die in your sin and you were going to go to hell. But as Miss Scotty read, but God so loved the world. God so loved you that he sent his only son to die for you. That is the good news. And Paul comes in and says, when I come and I am trying to reach people and I am trying to teach people, it starts with proclaiming, this is the good news. It's not about me. It's not about this place. It's not about this experience or these messengers or this organization. It is about the good news. And Paul comes in in verse 2 and he said, I decided to know nothing. Now you could take this a couple of different ways. You might look at it from a couple of different angles. But Paul is saying that in the midst of Corinth, in the midst of their pagan gods, in the midst of their traditions, in the midst of their rituals, in the midst of their history, in the midst of all the things that you might look into that might color your appearance on how you're going to reach them, he said, I didn't want to know anything. Because the focus is not on creation. Or I put there in your notes, creation is not the focus, the focus is the creator. So Paul comes in and he says, I understand that you're going to have traditions. I understand that you're going to have history. I understand that you're going to have different experiences. I understand that you're going to have different approaches. And you're going to have different things that you like and don't like. But the point is, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, sometimes when you go to different contexts and different countries, different ethnicities, different cultures. You show up and there's all these customs. I went to India one year with my mom and my sister and my dad and some other people from Trinity and I remember us going and we were flying into India and my mother comes to me and she says, honey, it's be rude if you don't eat what they put in front of you. And I remember we sat there at that one meal and that sweet host came in there and had boiled okra. Not fried okra. Boiled okra. And this okra had the stringiness. It's like you had just boiled it in a whole pot, whole pot of snot. And she comes out and she has that okra. And it is just all stringy and it's all just gooey and it's all glumpy. And she sets me down in a big old spoon and she just smiles at me. And I look at my mom and my mom just looks at me like, I told you. You got it. You... That'd be a good place to just stop and say, let's just talk about Jesus. Let's not talk about food. Let's not talk about culture expectations. Let's not talk about what makes you happy or what's insulting you. Let's talk about Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, when I came to Corinth or when I went to Thessalonica or when I went to Berea or when I went to Philippi or when I went to Antioch, it doesn't matter. You can go to all these different places, but what is true about every single place you go to is they all need Jesus. 
And sometimes we start to think, well, you know what? It's a difficult thing to try to reach the community of Wellstern. It's a difficult thing to try to reach this type of group or this type of group or this ethnicity or that culture. No, Paul would say it is all about you coming in and not trying to make friends, not trying to get them to like you. It's coming in, telling them about Jesus and proclaiming the good news. So he talks about this priority. When it comes to reaching people, you proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Now I admit to you, there is all kinds of questions I have, challenges I have. I'd love to go back and ask Paul, okay, Paul, so tell me how you did it. Last night we were sitting here, we had the fall festival in conjunction with the trunk or treat, and we are sitting there and we are watching droves of people coming in and going out. At one time, me and Ben Gillentine are sitting outside and we're talking about how it is, how we could better reach these people with a spiritual conversation. Oh, we can come in and we can give them candy and we can fill them with hot cocoa and we can come in and do the cakewalk and we can do and have the bouncy house and all those things, but we're asking the question, how can we have a, how can we connect these people to a spiritual truth? That's a challenge and I don't want you to hear from me. Well, we got it all figured out. We've got the answers all taken care of, but it's one of those things that we're always asking when it comes to reaching this church, when it comes to reaching this community, when it comes to reaching these people. We need to understand that the priority of why we are here as a church is not to feel comfortable and not to feel uh, comforted in our sin, but the priority of this church is to tell people about Jesus. So he says, that's my, that's my priority. That is what I'm here. I am here to proclaim to you the testimony of God. So he says, proclaim the good news. But then, but then, this is where you might want to pull your toes in. You go to verse 3. And he says, here's my second priority. First is proclaim the good news. The second priority is to practice what we teach. To practice what we teach. Where do you see that from, Spence? Well, look at verse 3. These five words have really stuck with me, and I don't think I'm full. I don't think I'm through plumbing uh, the depths of what this means for me personally, or maybe what it means for us as a church. But notice these first five verses. The first five words in chapter or verse three, and I was with you. Paul is telling them there in Corinth as he's writing to them, and he is saying, not only did I come to you and proclaim the good news, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, but when I came to you, it wasn't that I came and I spoke to you and I went back to my own little circle of life. It wasn't that I came and I spoke to you and I went back to my own house. It wasn't I came and I spoke to you and then I left you there and I went on to back to what I was doing. He says, I was with you. Now, why is that so important to me? Because there's a lot of life that we do not with each other. And we will talk about this language, well, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And yeah, but brothers and sisters in Christ do more than just meet on one Sunday. They do more than just gather up maybe on a Wednesday. There's an idea of this fellowship. There's this idea of this togetherness. And so he says, Paul is telling them, not only was I present with you in your life, he says, I was with you, but he was not just with them in the good times. Notice he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. You know, there's a difference between the word sympathy and empathy. Sympathy a lot of times means that something happens and I'm so sorry, I I feel bad, I, I, I grieve with you. Empathy is being able to say that I have been there and I know what it's like and I know what you're dealing with. 
I know how it feels to walk the walk you're walking. I know how it feels to face the struggles you're having. And so what Paul is telling them is I was with you, so I am not being sympathetic about your trials. I am being empathetic in your trials. I know what it was like to face the cold. I know what it was like to face the opposition because I was right there with you. You know, sometimes we go to this community and sometimes we go to this neighborhoods and when we say, you know what, you just need to trust Jesus, but then we don't practice trusting Jesus. We need you to be faithful to God and we don't live out being faithful to God. We want you to be obedient, but we don't want to be obedient. It goes back to that old adage, especially for parents, that you want to tell them, do as I say, or do as I say, not as I do. There are so many people in this community that won't go to church because they're tired of the hypocrites that are in church. They're tired of the people that come to them and say one, to, one thing to them on a Sunday and then they live something different on a Monday. They come and they say, well, look who me, look what I'm doing. I want the attention on me on Sunday. And then they're not living that life on Tuesday where we were serving at previously in the church. Uh, there was a, a, a fellow minister in the community. He had some kids playing Little League ball. And he was barred from going to the Little League games. A Baptist preacher in the community was barred from going to Little League games because he had been kicked out of too many games for hollering and berating the refs. And he kind of laughed it off like, huh, I can't go watch my kids play. Well, why not? Well, they won't let me go to the games. Well, why not? Huh, because I'm too, I'm too hard on the refs. You are a Baptist preacher serving in the community, and people know he's too much of a jerk to come into the Little League games. That is not practicing what you teach. I'm sure somewhere he had talked about long-suffering. I'm sure somewhere he had talked about patience. I'm sure somewhere he had talked about forgiveness. I'm sure somewhere he had talked about his testimony. I'm sure somewhere he had talked about being a light to the world. (laughs) And yet he wasn't practiced what he was teaching. And so Paul says, I was with you. You saw my life. I saw your life. Not only was I present in your life, but then I was there. I faced the same trials. I faced the same struggles. I was with you. And he says in verse 4, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words. Now some of your translations, it may not have the word plausible. It may say enticing. It may say persuasive. It may say clever. The idea is that Paul is saying that by the testimony of my life was not trying to persuade you like some life insurance sales or some carpet salesman or some encyclopedia collection salesman. I wasn't trying to come and sell you on something. You could see from my life that what I said I believed, I lived. And what I lived reflected what I said I believed. And church, we can come together and we can talk about putting other people first. We can talk about loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind. We can talk about loving one another. We can talk about being the hands and feet of Jesus. We can come and we can talk about our faithfulness and our submission and obedience to God. And we can come and we can talk about, oh man, the word of God that is paramount in my life. I submit myself to the word of God and I want the word of God to organize and structure and direct my life. We can talk about all of those things on Sunday. The danger is, is that we don't remember what we said Monday. So Paul says, 
My first priority was to proclaim the good news. My second priority was to practice what we preach. And so he tells them in verse 4 that it's not the matter that me coming and you hearing what I say and the cleverness of what I say. No, he says, I had a visible testimony. You could see in my life, you can point to my life, and you can say not only do they believe it, but they also live it. I, I just wonder. Could it be in our life today, and I'm not going to try to say in every situation, but could it be in our lives today that sometimes we have the problems and the hindrances and the oppositions that we have that God allows to bring into our lives so that we might show our faithfulness to God in the midst of it? Could it be that people around us are going, you know what, how is he going to respond when he gets a flat tire? How is he going to respond when he doesn't get a good doctor's report? How is he going to respond when his kids don't act the way they should? How is he going to respond when he faces the same problems, the same trials, and the same struggles in life? Could it be that God is letting us, allowing us, putting us in that position so a watching world can say it's not just speech. It's practice. And yet, and yet, we hit those trials in life. And some of you are going through trials right now in this room that I'm aware of. And some of you are going through trials in this room right now that I'm not aware of. But sometimes we go through trials and instead of us saying to ourselves, this is an opportunity to serve the Lord, we're going to be faithful. We start to fall apart. And we start to lose our witness. And we lose our testimony. Paul says, when I came to you, when I came to you, all I wanted to talk about was Jesus Christ. And when I came to you, all I wanted to do was talk about Jesus Christ. And when I came to you, you saw the, con the conduct of my life, both Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. You saw the, the, the testimony, the witness of my life, so you know that I believe what I was teaching to you. And yet, too many times, we come to church and we put on the face, and then we leave. Last night for the fall festival, some people dressed up. Some people came, and they put on the, the face, and they were pretending to be somebody they were not, and they come, and, you know, it's kind of humorous, and it's kind of sweet, and it's kind of simple. But there's a lot of people that come to church that play Halloween every Sunday. They come to church every single Sunday, and every single Sunday is Halloween Sunday. They come, and they put on the face, and you come in and say, how are you doing? I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. None of us are fine. We all have challenges. We all have obstacles. We all have battles that we are fighting, both physical and spiritual. And yet somewhere in this midst, we start to think that I can't tell you of my struggles, I can't tell you of my problems, and I can't tell you of my joys or my sorrows. Paul says, I'm going to practice what I preach, and you're going to see in my life the faithfulness of God in me. So he talks about the good news. He talks about practicing what you preach. But then notice in verse 5. I don't know how your translation reads, but in... Starting in verse 5, there is two words, so that. Sometimes people may look at it and say, therefore, because of, in light of. You can do, but Paul is saying that because of my priority to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to proclaim Jesus, and because of the testimony and the practice of my life, why did I do that? So that your faith. 
your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What Paul is saying, his priority is, is when he came to the people there in Corinth, his priority was not for them to place their faith in Paul, but for them to place their faith in God. So he even says right there in verse 5, so your faith not, might not rest in the wisdom of men. Paul is saying that the whole goal in all this is not for you to think, you know what, Paul's a great preacher. Paul's a great follower of Jesus Christ. Oh, Paul's this ideas and Paul's ideas or man's ideas or man's wisdom. Why? Because man's wisdom is finite. Finite. What does that mean? Finite means that it has boundaries. It's not without error. Whenever I was Kirby's age, and I was in school, they taught me that Pluto was a planet. Now, to my understanding, there are science books that Kirby is exposed to in school that teaches Kirby that Pluto is no longer a planet, it's just a, a star. Whenever I was younger and I was Annalise's age, they taught me that you had to eat within the first 30 minutes of waking up. And if you didn't eat, then your metabolism would go in starvation mode and everything you ate would go straight to your hips. And so therefore, that's why breakfast was the most important meal of the day. Because if you didn't eat within 30 minutes of waking up, your metabolism wouldn't wake up. And then all you would do is just gain weight. Man's wisdom is finite. Because I can take you to a YouTube video. Dietitian is saying, you know what? Now we're promoting this intermittent fasting. And now we promote not eating for 16 hours. And then uh, one, of the, uh, one of the interviewers said, well, what about breakfast? Like, well, you know what? Uh, we were wrong about that. Several years ago, my mother had knee replacement surgery. And after her knee replacement surgery, they had prescribed a certain amount of rehab and a certain amount of work that she had to do. Because they said that was what the body needed to recover from the knee replacement surgery. Well, I don't know about you, Miss Paula, but now my mom's getting ready to have knee replacement surgery this coming Friday, and her physician is saying that the physical therapy is no longer necessary. So one doctor just several years ago said, you have to do it, and crying is a means of showing that it's working, and now they're saying it's not required at all. Why? Because man's wisdom is finite. So Paul says, I don't want your faith to be in me. I don't want your faith to be in a church. I don't want your faith to be in a, a denomination. I don't want your faith to be in a program. I don't want your faith to be in a methodology. I want your faith to be in God. Because human wisdom, he says there in verse 5, human wisdom is finite and human hope is limited. Human hope is limited. We start to hope and we say, well, this is the answer and this is the cure. This possession will bring me happiness. This relationship will fill my needs. This job will be exactly what I am hoping for. This season of life is what I need. And it is limited. Hope is limited to your satisfaction and your happiness. And he tells us there the wisdom of men. He is saying that human power is deceptive. It's deceptive. We start to think, well, because they're in control, then they know what is best and what is not best. So we start to think that the hope of this culture is based in a politician. Or we start to think that the hope for our future is in a pharmaceutical injection. We start to think that the hope for this future is in a diagnosis regarding our mental health. 
we start to think that the hope of our future is based in the wisdom of man. And Paul comes in and says, I want your faith to be grounded in God. I want your faith to be grounded in the word of God. I want your faith to not be grounded in men or humanity or creation. I want your faith to be grounded in God. Thursday night I was having dinner with some friends and I mentioned the name Jimmy Swaggart. And one of the individuals sitting there at the table said, who? And I was reminded that I'm older than I think. <laughs> but some of you are old enough to remember the name Jimmy Swaggart. You can still find him on television. He has his own cable channel where he still sits there and he still preaches and he still plays the piano and he still sings music. But you think back not just a couple of decades ago and you had this figure known as Jimmy Swaggart and he fell morally. And whether it's Jimmy Swaggart whether it's Mr. Baker, whether it's Oral Roberts, or whether it is Perry Noble, whether it's Matt Chandler, whether it's Mark Driscoll, you fill in the blank. Sometimes we get hyped up in a personality or in a church movement, and when that personality or that church movement falls into sin, then we think it's all over. And sometimes you even think about the ebbs and the flows, the rise and the falls of churches and the rise and the falls of the ministries. And sometimes people say, well, I went to this church. <coughs> Excuse me. I was going to this church when this person was the pastor or that person was going on. But now that is not there and I'm not going there any longer. And how many people tie their faithfulness to God based upon the ministry of the church? And he is telling us, Paul is telling us, it is not in the wisdom of men, but it is in the power of God. He wanted the individuals for their faith to be grounded in God, not grounded in the identity of the church, not grounded in the personality of the preacher, not grounded in the, the, the ebbs and the flows and the highs and the lows of the ministry. He wanted them to be grounded in God. Why? Because Paul knew there was coming a day that he was no longer going to be there. And their faith and faithfulness, if not grounded in God, would rise and fall with the personalities in the church. And brothers and sisters, there's a danger there when we start trying to reach a community, we start trying to reach people, what are we trying to reach them with? Us? Us? So when people come in here, we want them to like us. We want them to find us enjoyable. They, we want to try to find some connection. We want to make some small talk. And all those things are good and all those things have their place. But what are we connecting them to? I heard a preacher a long time ago said that what you win them with is what you have to keep them with. And the point he was trying to make is if we come in there and in every single Sunday it's a new circus. And every single Sunday it's a new gimmick. And every single Sunday it's something new, over the top, something that you would not expect. Then every single Sunday people coming expecting to see what is the latest and the greatest. Sometimes, Greg may not admit this, but sometimes this happens with music. People come in, well, I've got to have this great experience and I've got to have this great music. And how do we define it? By the words that we sing or the fickleness of our hearts. Sometimes people come in and they, 
they sit down under the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. And it's like, well, he didn't connect with me, and I didn't like what he had to say, and he was too loud, he was too quiet, he was too fast, he was too slow, he was too long, he was too short, he was too boring, whatever the case may be. And you know what? At the end of the day, you still have the Word of God. So Paul says, my, my priorities in reaching people was to proclaim the good news, to practice what we preach, and to place faith in God. So then how do we use this as an example for us this morning? Well, you see there at the bottom of your notes, I just want to give you three examples from Paul that how he put this into application, how he applied these priorities to his life. The first one is, is that Paul didn't get over it. And that needs a little explanation. What I mean, he did not get over it. He didn't get over it. I realize that's not uh, the best use of language, but it's trying to be succinct. What did he not get over? He didn't get over the idea that God saved him. Of who he was before God saved him. Of what he was when God saved him. And now that God has saved him and God has saw fit to use him in the kingdom of God. He never got over the idea that I once was lost and now I'm found. He never got over the idea of the things that he did against God. And now that God has saw fit to use him. He never got over this idea that Jesus came, died for his sins so that he might be forgiven. So that he might live on purpose for God. He never got over it. Sometimes we get over it. You get a new puppy. Oh, it's a sweet puppy. Until it uses the bathroom on every piece of furniture in the house. You get over it. You have a new baby. Oh, it's such a precious baby. Until you're four nights in and you haven't gotten a lot of sleep. You kind of get over it. Oh, I got a new vehicle. Oh, that's so great. I, I love this vehicle until you first get the first ding, and then you kind of get over it. There's things in life that we get over. Paul never got over his salvation. And brothers and sisters, sometimes in the church today, we need to be reminded on a daily basis that salvation is not something we're entitled to. Salvation is a free gift of God, and we ought to get excited about the fact that we have been saved. We should get excited about the fact that God has saved us. And not only did he not get over it, but he didn't give up. He didn't give up. Hold your place there in 1 Corinthians 2. Turn back to Acts chapter 18. Turn back to Acts chapter 18, because I want to walk you, actually go to Acts 17, because I want to walk you through this picture of where Paul landed when he got to Corinth. Paul is sitting there, and he's on this missionary journey, and he goes to Philippi. And people focus on the, the uh, conversion of the Philippian jailer. But if you think about it, the reason why they're in jail is they just got beaten and with rods. And they got put in jail, beaten, stripped down, left saying, we're going to do something with you tomorrow. And they are being persecuted and they're being buffeted, mistreated, abused. And that's Acts chapter 16. Then they leave Philippi. They go to Thessalonica. They're in Thessalonica. He's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the people there in Thessalonica, there's a certain number of devout Jews that got up and said, you're, you're, you're wrong. And, and they stirred up a revolt and they ran him out of town. So then he goes down to Berea. And he gets down to Berea and he starts having some people that are willing to listen to what he says to say. And they're willing to listen to what he's going to tell them. But then people from Thessalonica come down to Berea and they run him out of Berea. And then you have Paul, I mean, Timothy and Silas then leave Paul and they leave him alone there in the city of Athens. And he's there kind of convalescing, if you will, in the city of Athens. But he looks around and he sees lostness. He says, these people need Jesus. 
So in Acts chapter 17, he goes and he addresses them there in verse 22, the Areopagus, or some of your translations may say Mars Hill, and he tells them about Jesus. He's mocked. He's ridiculed. He's made fun of. Then chapter 18 and verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Now, sometimes we miss because we don't catch the full gravity of what he's saying here. But Paul had been ran out of town after town after town. Why? Because he was faithful to Jesus. He was faithful to the mission that God had given him. And yet, every time he went into, they're like, "Get out! We don't want to talk to you. Get out! Leave!" And then he gets down to Corinth and he finds two other people, Priscilla and Aquila. And those had been panished. They had been kicked out. And so they, they come together and they're just like, be a good time for a break. Be a good time to just take it easy. Be a good time for just us to just let it go. But notice verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. So then in verse 5, Silas and Timothy show back up there at Corinth. They're looking for Paul and they're like, what's going on? What are you doing? And it says there in verse 5, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. But, verse 6, and when they opposed and reviled him, he kept going. Paul never got over the idea that he was saved and Paul didn't give up. Brothers and sisters, where do we have the permission to quit? He didn't give up and he didn't stop going. Now, too often in the church today, we start to think, well, Spence, that's your job. We're going to set aside a set of deacons tonight and those, those individuals are going to serve us in the coming days and as a deacon body, as a deacon ministry. Well, that's their job. No, it's not their job. It's our job. We are the body of believers. We are the church, not this physical place. We are the church, and we have a responsibility to reach people. Statistically speaking, First Baptist Church in Wellston is the largest church in town. So sometimes you may be thinking, well, that means they're the largest religious organization in town. You know what religious organization is larger? The nuns. The nuns. Not N-U-N-S. Not Sound of Music. The nuns. The N-O-N-E-S. It's those individuals that do not identify any affiliation with any church. It is the 75% of the people within a 10-mile radius of this church that do not go to church on a regular basis anywhere this Sunday. 75% of this community, 14,000 people within a 10-mile radius of this church, 75% of those 14,000 people are not in a church this Sunday morning. Why do I tell you that? Because there's a lot of reaching that needs to happen. And there's a lot of going that needs to take place. And we have a tremendous opportunity before us to go and to proclaim 
Jesus to practice what we preach and to lead them to put their hope and their faith in God. But what is it going to take for us to do that? It's going to take for you and I to have a conviction and have a, have a compassion and have a practice that doesn't get over being saved, that doesn't give up, and that understands as long as there is one lost person in this community, we have a mandate to keep going. So, now it's back to you. How are you reaching people? What are you doing to reach people? Are you being faithful to God? Bow your heads with me.